Welcome to the Tuesday Theology edition of the Scottsdale Podcast. At Scottsdale, one of our core values is studying God's Word. So through this theology class, our goal is to equip our people with the right knowledge of God. Enjoy, and we hope that you grow in your knowledge of God and application of His Word. All right, guys, good evening, good evening. It is officially 7 o'clock, so it's good to see a whole face of, of actual theologians in person on a Tuesday. Uh, my name is David Dietz. Uh, I'm uh, privileged to serve you guys as one of your elders on our Council of Elders as a lay elder. And uh, so a little bit nervous to teach in front of such a, a big class, but I'm also really excited. I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. Uh, I do have my Thompson t-shirt, sweat-proof uh, <laughs> undershirt on under this. So if you see this technology starting to fail, that is my way of saying hold some of those questions till next week, all right? <laughs> but, but it is true. It is good to be able to study God's Word together. And, and I'm super thankful that we don't you know, rely on technology and we don't rely on a teacher. We rely on the truth of God's Word and the authority of God's Word. We rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to, to teach us rightly, to guide us into truth, and also to guide us to the right response. So let's, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and ask for, for those, those things and those favors. Dear Father, Lord, we uh, do just uh, take a minute and uh, pause our hearts and uh, remind ourselves that we are coming to uh, the King of Kings, the one who is worthy of all praise, who created all things. Uh, Lord, who we would be unworthy uh, to even come into your presence or to speak your name or learn of you if it wasn't for the goodness and the mercy and the redemption that we find in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we come uh, humble. We come uh, desiring to know you better, to love you more. Uh, Lord, we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to teach us, uh, to guide us into all truth, to show us who you are, show us who we are, and, Lord, to show us how we can uh, live a, a life worthy and pleasing to you in every way. And so, Lord, be with our time. Uh, may we be blessed by it. May your uh, name be blessed and edified. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. All right. So today's session is on conversion. And I think it's pretty fair to say when we think of salvation, this is probably one of the things that we first comes to our mind. It's one of the maybe earliest outward steps that we see in the life of someone else that allows us to know that God's working in their heart and they're moving toward the Lord. And it may be one of the steps that we first recognize within ourselves, this idea of turning uh, from sin and turning to Christ. And uh, earlier when we talked about election, we mentioned that in Scripture, sometimes we see two concepts that are complementary and necessary, uh, but they seem like on the surface they could be at odds with each other. And we called that an antinomy. And we said one of them is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And I think Phil referenced this uh, illustration. I'm sure you guys have heard it. Imagine if we're standing on the 10th floor of a building and we see the floor is starting to collapse. And there are two ropes in front of us. And we're told to grasp hold of each rope and we'll be, we'll be safe. It'll hold us. And one of the ropes says God's sovereignty. But the other one says man's responsibility. And if we were to say to ourselves, well, you know, God's sovereign and he put the, the rope here and, and so he's done his part. I'm just going to go ahead and be extra sure I do everything I'm supposed to do. I'm going to grasp hold with two hands to man's responsibility and put my hope and my ability to make this decision. We're going to find very quickly that the other end of that rope will come through the pulley and we're going to fall. Right. At the same token, if we say to ourselves, well, God has asked me 
to do something. He's given me instruction. He's given me a response that I am to carry out. But you know what? God's sovereign. If he elected me from eternity past and I don't have to do a thing. I'm just going to sit back. If he wants me saved, I'll be saved. And so I'm just going to grab a hold of both hands to that God's sovereignty rope. We're also going to find very quickly that that other end can go through the pulley and we find ourselves on the ground, right? And so there's an error on both sides. I think the error in the first is, is one of sort of pride and self-reliance, that I'm going to take my stand, do the things it requires to please God. And I think the error on the other side at best would be disobedience. At worst, maybe uh, creating our own religion, our own God, our own way uh, to God when He has clearly told us uh, that what we are to do is to hold firmly to His sovereignty, worship Him for that, but to be obedient in the calling uh, that He gives us and the response to the calling He gives us in Scripture. Uh, so before we dig into conversion, I want to do two things. We'll take a quick detour, and I want to look at a really, really theologically written um, definition of worship. And I also want to take a quick review of where we've been in building this systematic theology. So D.A. Carson in his book, uh, Worship by the Book, says, Worship is the proper response of all moral sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God, precisely because he is worthy, delightfully so. This side of the fall, human worship of God properly responds to the redemptive provision that God has graciously made. He goes on to say, while all true worship is God-centered, Christian worship is no less Christ-centered. Empowered by the Spirit and in line with the stipulations of the new covenant, it manifests itself in all our living, finding its impulse in the gospel, which restores our relationship with our Redeemer God, and therefore also with our fellow image bearers, our co-worshippers. Such worship therefore manifests itself both in adoration and in action, both in the individual believer and in corporate worship, which is worship offered up in the context of the body of believers who strive to align all the forms of their devout ascription with all worth to God, with the panoply of new covenant mandates and examples that bring to fulfillment the glories of antecedent revelations and anticipate the consummation. Big, big definition, but there's a few things I just want to point out in there. One of the things we see about worship is that it is a proper response to who God is and what God has revealed, right? It's certainly God-aimed, it's Christ-centered, and it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it is something that um, I want us to keep in mind. What is our proper response when we uh, are, are met with revelation of who God is. So let's think about that as we go through this. Also want to review here kind of where you guys have been so far. In some of your classes, you've studied God's word, God's attributes, creation, God's providence and sovereignty, opposition to God in Satan and demons, God's work of election, the gospel call, um, See here, this one, uh, skip down here just a bit. Man's creation, man's sin and separation. Jesus Christ, his atoning work in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Common grace and the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration. You guys have been building uh, this picture, what scripture teaches about these things. And now we are at the, uh, the point where we're going to look at um, conversion. And so let's also put this in context of Grudem's order of salvation. Do we have that slide coming up next? 
Can you go to the next slide for me? Next slide. Yes, please. Perfect. So in looking at this order of salvation, this is a slide you guys have looked at and studied before. Um, we see that election, the gospel call, regeneration, and now we come to conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, death, and glorification. So working through these, God in his goodness and in his sovereignty, according to his purpose and will, has chosen that some will be saved. And he's done that before the creation of the world. Election, God's sovereign choice. God, by his design and his desire, has, has called for the gospel to go out and to be preached to all nations. And the gospel call goes forth. The Holy Spirit then comes and imparts life to us when we previously were dead in our trespasses and sins. And you guys should have spoken about that last week, about being born again, regeneration. And so now the question, I'll go back to the slide before, conversion. What is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of our sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation? So as Grudem brings this down, he um, talks about two aspects to conversion. Who can remember the two things that Grudem points out are necessary components of conversion? So faith and repentance. Yep, we all agree with that. Um, faith and repentance are, are two aspects. And we're going to sit here and dwell on these a little bit. Let's go ahead and define them. Um, so the next slide should define these for us here. And says faith, and, it, and it's good for us to know that we're talking about saving faith, right? Faith has become somewhat of a watered-down term in our culture. It can mean just a, an irrational thought of anything, but here we're talking about saving faith, order of salvation. Saving faith is to trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God. And repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Talk to me a little bit from your readings, from your reflections, from your understandings. Why are these two things uh, necessary in conversion? Would it be possible or sufficient for there to be one and not the other? Um, is it possible for one to exist without the other? Why do you think these two things are necessary sides of one coin? This is the interactive part of the teaching. <laughs> what do you have? They happen at the same time. Okay. So, and it is true that there is, um, that they, they, they happen together. And some people will try to divide those apart and say, well, I think this happens first. But, but why do you say they happen at the same time? Yeah, can't have one without the other. So let's think about this a second. We're talking about repentance and we're talking about faith. Repentance has, has the idea of change of mind that then goes into a turning or a change of behavior. So obvious illustration, if I am walking this way and I'm walking toward this door, that's my direction that I'm facing, that's the way I'm going, that's the way my mind is set. For me to turn away from that path is necessarily going to cause me to turn to something else, someone else, somewhere else, right? I can't turn from something without turning 
to something at the same time. We can agree with that, right? When it comes to something like uh, a bad habit or, or maybe even a particular individual sin, you know, it is possible to turn from, say, uh, excessive drinking or a bad habit of smoking and to turn to something other than Christ, right? We might turn to nicotine patch or chewing gum or turn to an AA meeting, right? But that's not what we're talking about with conversion. We're not talking about turning away from every individual sin or everything we could turn from. We're talking about going from death to life. We're talking about salvation. And so if we think about it like this, um, what is one of the first things that we're turning from? We're turning to Christ. What are we turning from? What does Scripture tell us we're turning from during a time of repentance? What's one of the first things a believer experiences? Sin. Yeah, and, and any particular sin come to mind as one that we think we turn from early in the process? Pride. Okay, pride. Self-centeredness. Self-centeredness, okay. It's a little bit circular, but unbelief. Good, and, and, and a very good one. And you say circular, but, but let's start there. Let's look, at, let's look at some scripture. So let's look at, at John 16, um, 7 through 11. Uh, and this is Jesus talking, uh, obviously, to his disciples. This is the last day that he's on earth. He's giving them information that they need to carry on. And he says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And he goes on to say, concerning sin... Because they do not believe in me. One of the first sins that we're convicted of is our lack of faith, our lack of belief in who Jesus is. Um, we see that there in verse 9. We also see this a little bit in John 3.16 to 18. We all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We keep going. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of one and only Son of God. And so in both of those passages, we see that one of the first things as a non-believer, when God in his goodness and his love for us from eternity past has allowed the gospel call to reach our ears, to reach our heart. When the Holy Spirit of God comes in and gives us understanding, gives us new life, one of the first things we realize is, I'm on a path that's going to lead to death. I'm on a path that is going to lead to judgment, and rightly so. We would have never felt that without the work of God, without the call of the gospel, without the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. But in that moment, not only do we see our direction we're heading, but what comes before our eyes is the beauty of a Savior, the beauty of Jesus Christ, right? And we're turned first uh, from our unbelief. Okay, and we'll go on further as we think about uh, continuing. There are other sins that we will turn from, and hopefully we'll lead a whole life of sanctification uh, and working toward um, a, a life that pleases God. Why is it that we turn to Jesus and not to a self-help book. Why do we turn to Jesus and not turn to a religious action? And the answer we find also in Scripture. And there is 
salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And of course, here we're talking about Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 1, 4, and 8, I'm kind of picking through this passage a little bit, is a beautiful picture of this entire process of conversion, turning from death, turning to life, which is necessarily found in Christ. So we see in verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we're dead. We're walking toward this door. I'm in my sin. That's the direction I'm heading. But God, being rich in mercy, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. There's the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, and it's Christ-aimed, right? And then we see the outcome. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So we're walking in death, in sin. The Spirit of God, God being rich in mercy because of His great love for us, makes us alive in Christ, and now we're walking toward and in Christ, and we're walking in a totally different direction, a direction that God has prepared in advance for us to walk. And so this idea of conversion, you know, repentance is turning away from sin. Um, faith is turning to Christ in whom we have life. And it's only in Christ that we can have life. So if we're talking about salvation, if we're talking about turning, these two things are necessary. And uh, like my friend said, uh, they happen together. We can't turn from something without turning um, to something. So we see these are, are two sides of the same coin. Now we can logic through that, but let's also just look at what Scripture asks us to do. Let's look at how Scripture puts this together. So in some portions of Scripture, we see both the call for faith and repentance explicitly in the same verse. Let's look at a couple of those here. Acts 20, 21 says, testifying uh, both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see both repentance and faith uh, being, being called upon here. Hebrews 6, 1, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Again, combination of faith and repentance. Sometimes we see the concepts of faith and repentance being taught without the particular words. So we look at the next one here in Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. What would that be? That would be the turning, the, the repentance, right? And the unrighteous man, his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Again, turning away from sin, but what are we turning to? Turning to the Lord, to, to God, right? We have repentance and faith, faith being in the right object, okay? Sometimes in Scripture, though, uh, we see uh, where repentance is called for, and it is sort of understood that faith is a necessary component. So let's look at a couple of verses here. Uh, Luke tells us, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. We see the call for repentance. There's not an explicit call for faith. But I think we can also see that we're talking about Christ and we're talking about his rising from the dead. It is implied what our faith is turning, uh, where our repentance is turning to, which is faith in Christ. Acts 2, 37 and 38 says, Now when they uh, heard this, they were cut to the heart 
and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So again, we see the command to repent and it's implied that what we're repenting is toward faith in Christ. Other times in scripture, we see sort of the opposite, right? We see that faith is the thing that we're asked to uh, exercise, believe in, and, and repentance is understood. Um, so we see uh, a few things. And let's, let's go ahead and move through. Um, these are more uh, examples of repentance without the explicit statement of faith. So we see lots of scripture there. Let's keep moving another slide for me here. So here's one where we see more uh, an, a call for faith and not necessarily an explicit call for repentance. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Acts 16.31, and they said, Believe faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you uh, and your household. Okay, I think we may have, uh, let's see if we have any more on that one. And Romans 10.9, because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we read this already, for by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one should boast. And so here we see some verses where we're called to exercise faith, to believe in God. There's not an explicit call for repentance in those verses. This is why we take the whole counsel of Scripture. And we understand that to turn to Christ is necessarily to turn from sin. And to turn from sin to life is to necessarily turn and believe in Christ. Any questions on that construct or Grudem's idea of conversion or why we have it placed in this portion of the order of salvation? Any, any thoughts, any comments to this point on those scriptures? <coughs> so we either have everyone thoroughly confused or we did a good job, I don't know which, or bored. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's keep moving. Um, what were some other things that Grudem talked about when he talked about faith uh, and repentance? What were some of the things that he mentioned were necessary for us to exercise faith or for us to turn toward Christ? What were some of the components that he said were necessary prerequisites? So acknowledge. Tell me what you mean by that. You, I'm sorry, did you say knowledge? knowledge? Okay, very good. Sorry, I thought you said acknowledge. Yes. So there'd have to be some knowledge, right? We have to have some knowledge about Christ, some knowledge about the gospel. What else did he mention? Okay, heard you say it. Yeah, approval. So we have to have some knowledge of the gospel. We also have to have some approval of it. But he went a long way in helping us understand that those things alone are not enough, right? We know this. Just having knowledge of God is not the same as exercising saving faith in Christ, right? We've talked, you've heard Pastor Phil say that, uh, you know, faith without uh, belief is or without surrender is demonic faith, right? Even the demons believe and they shudder. And so we're not talking about just knowledge. We're not talking about just acceptance. You can accept that something's true, but not yield your heart or your life to that, right? 
Uh, and so the third piece of this was a personal decision to put faith in a personal savior, right? Let's, let's talk about knowledge. We talk about there's some knowledge that's necessary. What do you guys think? What, is, what knowledge would be necessary for one to put their faith in Christ, to turn from sin and turn to a savior? Okay, so the gospel, and, and what would you, just the gospel call as, as was given? I, I think we can't argue with that, right? It's in our order of salvation. That's a beautiful picture. Okay, what else? Anything else that we would need to hear other than the gospel? That we're, we are sinners deserving of damnation. Christ is a loving Savior who is, who is providing forgiveness of sins, paying our debt. We're going to yield our trust to him, right? Any other thoughts on that? Any other things you'd say are necessary to first believe? I think, uh, so one of the pictures that I like a lot uh, when describing what faith is is when Paul's talking about Abraham's faith in Romans 4. And he's going a long way to describe how this faith was counted in his righteousness. And so he's described this a lot up to this point. But then um, he's sort of explaining how Abraham's the father of us all, being Jews and Gentiles. And it's not only the adherent of the law, but the one who shares the faith of Abraham he uses words like walks in the footsteps of Abraham. And it alludes to the fact that Abraham's faith was that he believed God. He believed his promises would be kept and that he would be able to do as says fully convinced he would be able to do what he had promised. And then he went. So God said, go here. Here's my promise. And Abraham went. And yeah. So there was not just a knowledge not just uh, an agreement, but then footsteps. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. And just like our definition of worship, right? There is a revelation of truth from God. He shows us who he is. He gives us something to respond to, and then we respond in obedience. And so this idea of, you know, whoever believes in me, that you're pointing out that that belief uh, could be synonymous with uh, believes to the point that we put our trust in him and follow. And action is, is the outcome of that. One of the reasons I, I bring that up, I want to tell you a little story. When I was in college, freshman year, took a class. It was a fundamentals of philosophy class. And it was fundamentals of, of, of Christianity. And I thought, oh, perfect. Raised in the church, got all this. This is going to be my easy A philosophy class. And I will say that the professor was very fair. And it was a, a, a class that was easy to get an A in. But it was not at all what I expected. It was taught by a gentleman named Theodore Drange, who is um, unfortunately a world-renowned atheist, done some debating um, with some pretty, pretty high-end names of, of um, Christian apologists. And this is one of the books that um, we had to work through. And, and this is a book full of just about every objection you could think of to the Christian faith, every so-called uh, error, every so-called uh, contradiction. Um, this brought into account every philosophical and hi historical uh, thing that you could question. And uh, one of the papers I remember writing was on objections to Christian soteriology. And uh, it was objections to the doctrine. And one of the charges was the doctrine is incomplete because we are told that we need to believe, but we're not told exactly what we need to believe. And so the professor goes through and says, which of these subset S beliefs would be necessary for us to be saved? And he lists out 46, honestly, biblical things that are true about who Jesus is, true about who we are. And he's asking, 
hey, if I'm supposed to believe in something, I need to know what I'm supposed to believe so I can work my mental ascension to those places. So tell me, which of these 46 things must I know before I can rightly say that I believe in Jesus as my Savior? And so um, I just want to kind of, by way of sort of an application here, I, I want to make sure we, when we study theology, I think it's great, right? We, we learn deep things about God, we define things rightly, we, we, we maybe, maybe uh, tinker with, with ways that we say arguments. But if we're not careful, we can also create really, really uh, amazingly complicated lists of everything that must happen in an order that must be believed. And so I want to um, just take a second and try to wrap a little bit of flesh, a little bit of our response back around um, this idea. And so I love the way Grudem talks about um, faith being a personal invitation, a personal willingness to respond to the person of Jesus Christ. And uh, for those of you who know me, this is like the last thing that is of my nature, but I, I wrote something that I think may be a bit of an illustration. And it's just a story, it's just an illustration, but I want you to listen, and I want you to put yourself in the position of this character. I want you to think back to the time when you accepted Christ as your Savior. I want you to think about how that came to be, what little or much knowledge you may have had. And I just want to listen to this story and see what, see what maybe um, we can think about this. So I'm just going to read this to you. As evening falls, with your feet aching from the worn, poorly fitting shoes, sitting on the hard, cold concrete actually feels relieving normal. You are homeless, but you have found a strange satisfaction in the small area on this crowded street of makeshift tents, shanties, and cardboard. Your stained green toboggan and tattered flannel keeps you warm most nights. And that is as long as the brownish yellow water running from the backup storm drain isn't diverted into your space again. Really, you have everything you need. The sack of rice you carefully guard is three quarters full. And so is the fifth of whiskey you were able to buy with the money someone gave you last night. Besides, if things get pretty tough, you can always spend a warm night in the shelter five blocks down. The people there seem nice enough, and they remember your name, but the walls seem to close in, especially when they remind everyone staying that night of the rules. The rules make sense. They're meant to, to keep everyone safe, but somehow they feel like they're meant to change you. You seem more free in your own space. Just as you close your eyes to rest, you hear a voice too healthy and cheerful not to be another outsider coming to help you. I've got someone I want you to meet, she says. Yeah, that's great. I just hope that this Jesus brought a warm blanket like the last one, you say, without opening your eyes. The visitor didn't, didn't even need to mention his name. You'd heard it many times before. By now, you're sure they're the ones that need the help. Every time a cheerful voice introduces you to Jesus, it's always some person standing there alone, sometimes with some papers or a book they want you to read, sometimes closing their eyes as they babble, asking the air to bless you. But it's worth your pretending because sometimes you get a new pair of used shoes or a bottle of water if you don't chase them off too soon. But tonight you're surprised as a second voice actually says your name. And there's something about the way he said it. He spoke it like he knew you, not your name, but you. 
Inside you felt a familiarity you hadn't felt since your mother who gave you your name had spoken it, but she had been gone for decades. As you open your eyes, they make contact with his. His eyes hold the authority of a judge, but judgment is not what they're communicating. You're not sure why, but it seems clear that the deep wounds in his wrists have something to do with it. The look of pity, which you're familiar with, and pride, which is often behind the eyes that look on pitifully, is strangely not pre present. Instead, there's compassion. His eyes look at you like he has been where you are, but you know he hasn't, at least not in the same way. Even as you're looking at him, it's as if through him you can start to see what he sees. You notice the mess you're sitting in, and for some reason it seems inappropriate. You begin to straighten things up. You sit up a little taller. In embarrassment, you push your whiskey bottle out of you. His voice says, it's okay. Don't bother reorganizing that. We're not staying here. He looks at you and he says, come, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. You'd always been so strong, so independent, so busy, you never realized that weary is what you are. Rest is actually what your soul was desiring. You start to gather a few things and you reach for your bag of rice. Wherever you're going, surely you'll need to provide for yourself. You notice a few maggots crawling in the top of your rice. Jesus says, leave all this. Trust me, I have everything you need. Trust me. The idea seemed foreign, but believable. As he turned to lead the way, you found yourself releasing your belongings and walking behind him. This road you'd walked on before, but this time was different. The familiar soreness in your feet was gone. As you follow Jesus, he is walking at a perfect pace for you to stay close, yet slow enough to notice the distractions on each side. To your left is the expensive church where the well-dressed people say Jesus is, but it must be a different Jesus because you never felt welcome there. To your right, you pass by the prostitutes on the corner whose beckoning in the past would have caused you to stop, but your eyes are remembering the way his looked at you. Your buddy calls your name and offers you a chance to get high. It had always erased your pain in the past, but the thought itself now seemed painful. You realized you weren't exactly sure where Jesus was leading you, but you knew it was away from where you'd been and you knew it was for your good. Along the way, he stops to get you clean clothes. You're able to shower and shave and brush your teeth. You find others are now walking beside you, and while you don't know them, they feel like family already. And while Jesus is talking and teaching, all the while he's talking and teaching, and the more you learn, the more you love him. Before you know it, you hear your cheerful, healthy voice say to a stranger, I have someone I want you to meet. And you are reminded and glad that you made the decision to accept his invitation and follow. Talking about conversion, right? A willful response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. We're talking about a personal commitment to follow a personal risen Savior. We're not talking about a religion. We're not talking about following rules. We're not talking about even someone who died 2,000 years ago. We're talking about a Savior who has come to us in the power of the Holy Spirit in the gospel call. And the question is, what is our response to follow? So sometimes I think if we're not careful, we'll study theology, right? And we'll debate the details, but, but sometimes we, we miss 
our worshipful response, our response to who God is. And so that's what I want to um, just kind of settle in on here a little bit. And I just want to pray for us as a group and pray for us as we move forward. And then we'll have some more time to just discuss some, some other things that may be on your mind about this chapter. So let's, um, let's go to the Lord and let's just pray. Ask him to move our hearts into a direction um, that it would be appropriate. Father, Lord, we uh, do uh, just want to, again, humble our hearts. And, and Lord, uh, there's many in this room who uh, have experienced your, your grace and your mercy and your salvation. There's, there's many of us who have, uh, one point, heard your voice. And maybe we had heard the gospel a thousand times. Uh, but this time was different. This time, Lord, uh, we knew you knew us. And we knew, Lord, we needed to know you. And Lord, you moved our hearts to turn from you, or to turn from sin, to turn from self, and to turn to you, to follow your voice, to follow your footsteps. And Lord, over the years, um, sometimes we uh, find it easy to, to, to substitute that personal relationship day by day uh, to a risen Savior with, with knowledge and with arguments and with um, even, even good things like theology. And so Lord, we just pray and we just ask that you would Every day, soften our hearts. Every day, preach to us the gospel. Every day, Lord, uh, call our name. Uh, incline our hearts to hear you, to turn to you, to follow you, to follow in your footsteps, to stay close, Lord, uh, to a risen Savior. And Lord, in a class like this, there may be people here who have heard the gospel, uh, who are drawn to the gospel, who acknowledge the, the truth of the gospel, maybe even agree with the gospel but Lord, maybe have never yielded their hearts to you, maybe never turned in conversion and willingly submitted uh, to the gospel call to put their trust in Jesus for salvation. So Lord, I just pray that if there's any here that is at this step of conversion in their life, that they would just uh, move and yield their spirit to you, yield their heart to you, uh, receive your gift of salvation, Lord, and begin a journey and, a, and a, a path of following you, loving you, knowing you, learning more and more about you. But every day, Lord, uh, coming back to the risen Savior, uh, Lord, may we walk with you. And then, Lord, may we, understanding these things, offer this to a dying world who needs you, Lord. As we proclaim the gospel, may we offer them Jesus, the one who knows them and loves them and gave his life uh, for, for, for their eternity, for their uh, glory for their praise. And so, Lord, I just pray for salvation in our church. I pray for salvation in our communities. And Lord, we just thank you for your word that shows us your goodness, but also shows us what our right response uh, to a holy God is. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that this teaching has enriched your understanding of God. If you found this teaching to be helpful, share it with your friends and family on social media and tag us at Scott's Hill. Till next time.